0: All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Pastor Brian Wolfmuller's Has American Christianity Failed? We are talking about eschatology, the study of the last things. And we have already taken a look in previous sections at uh, millennialism and, of course, our position on millennialism. And then today we're going to be looking at dispensationalism, And that begins on page 218. Before we engage in that conversation, let's begin with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Mm -hmm. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Alright, so dispensationalism. Sometimes the founder is said to be John Nelson Darby of the 19th century, and popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible, also of the 19th century. So this idea, even though it may strike us as Americans as being just kind of a staple of Christianity is in fact a new teaching and a new idea. Wolf Mueller going to identify three major issues with dispensationalism. And so we're going to simply follow him along. But let's begin where he begins with an introduction. Dispensational premillennialism is a mouthful again premillennialism the idea that jesus returns prior to this literal thousand year reign on earth and now we're modifying that with dispensational wolf miller continues this is the name of a theological system that has captured the imagination of american christianity Even if you have never heard the name, you most likely will have heard of the teachings. If you've seen the bumper sticker, quote, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, end quote, you've seen the theology of dispensational premillennialism. The quote-unquote secret rapture of the church, the left-behind books and movies, Christian Zionism, and the understanding that the modern nation-state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy are all part of the theological uniqueness of dispensational premillennialism. All right. So, you can obviously tell how widespread uh, this teaching is, and it may in fact be somewhat astonishing to us to realize that those things he mentions aren't truths taught in the scriptures he continues i was a dispensationalist long before i knew that word in fact i think most of american christianity is dispensational by default they have never heard any other teaching about the last days american christians grow up hearing about the rapture listening to preachers with the bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other showing us how biblical prophecy was being fulfilled in the geopolitical machinations in the Middle East. Yes. I remember when I was young being told that Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist and the helicopters were the locusts from Revelation, and so on and so forth. We've had several other quote-unquote Antichrists, you know, by the preachers with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Which is important to point out. I mean, I'm not just poking fun, because if there's false prophecies by a false prophet, then you should not listen to him or to it. And if these continue to stack up, as you know, a tree by its fruit, you should realize that it's... if Look, if all the fruit is rotten, probably the tree from which it all stems is rotten as well. (laughs) All right, Wolf Miller continues... The first time I went to Israel, I distinctly remember thinking, I will see Bible prophecy being fulfilled before my eyes. Dispensationalism takes the premillennial outline of the end times discussed in the previous section and overlays a number of theological presuppositions. Dispensationalism is much more than an eschatology. It is an entire system of doctrine that touches on salvation, the scriptures, and the gospel. We can identify three assertions that the dispensationalists claim make their theology unique. All right, here's the first, and my plan is to... uh, Yeah, my plan is to go through this fairly thoroughly. Um, They're shorter sections. But the first assertion first dispensationalists make a distinction between israel and the church they teach that israel is the earthly people of god and the church is the heavenly people according to dispensationalists god works differently in the different dispensations of history hence the name that's where dispensation comes from that there are these different dispensations God works um, one way in this time period or one way to these people and another way to these other people and so forth that's where yeah he's, he's uh, this is according to the dispensationalists uh, the church is the heavenly people and the and Israel is the earthly people of God. So you've got these two different dispensations and two different ways of dealing with those. Wolf are going to spell that out in a little bit more detail. Um, but for example, a dispensationalist thinks that uh, Israel can. I mean, this would be an ex- maybe a, I don't know, maybe an extreme position. It's extreme to my ears anyway. Um, but they'll make the claim that in Romans, remember chapters 9, 10, and eleven, that these teach that. Israel will be saved apart from Christ. So that'll give, you, that'll give you a pretty, you know, 100 proof take on dispensationalism that Israel is saved by the promises made to Israel, uh, or excuse me, uh, yeah, well, Israel is saved by the promises made to Abraham that then come to Israel. And so by believing in these promises, now we know because we know the New Testament, that the promises made to Abraham and to Israel are the promises of a Messiah. So we know that they're Christian too, but in dispensationalism, they're not Christian. They just have this faith in Yahweh and in Yahweh's promises, whatever they may be, but they don't need to have faith in the Messiah. God, will, God has his own unique relationship with Israel and his own, as, a, as a people and his own unique relationship with the church, those whom he is saving in Christ Jesus. So that w-
1: Isn't in Romans it also talks
0: about Yes, exactly. So you're going ahead and arguing against dispensationalism from Romans that um, we Gentiles have been grafted into that olive branch that is uh, that is Israel and we have become one. And likewise, Paul makes the argument that Israel, properly speaking, are those who believe in the Christ. Israel of old believed in his coming. Israel now believes that he came and his name is Jesus. And we Gentiles who also believe this have been grafted in. So, right, uh, uh, just an honest reading of those chapters of Romans debunks dispensationalism. But that's the kind of thing that they point to, or at least that would be one of the loci in the scriptures that they point to in order to concoct this bizarre theology.
1: Could they, could they more on my side than their side.
0: If oh, I- absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason why dispensationalism... It wasn't around for 1800 years because <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exist in the scriptures. But it is thorough going in America and again I think Wolf Mueller's point is right that we all kind of imbibe and drink this in on one level or another. I, I remember preaching a sermon very vividly here at Faith um, that you know the nation state of Israel being reconstituted in 1947 or whenever it was doesn't have anything to do with biblical prophecy and God's Israel is the church, those who believe in him, whether Jew or Gentile. In fact, by believing in him, we become so new that there is no longer Jew nor Gentile. And I can remember seeing the astonished eyes of people in the congregation because, and we're going to no doubt touch on this, because this idea of Zionism, has so infiltrated American Christian thinking that Israel has a special place in God's plan and a special place in the, uh, the prophecies of Revelation, and so we have to defend and protect Israel politically at all costs. This kind of thinking really has dispensationalist roots, but not, properly speaking, Christian or biblical roots. And you can think of the way that that's impacted our nation politically. This belief that Israel is special and we need them to stay around so that God's prophecies can be fulfilled. that's That's Christian Zionism, right? Christian Zionism, which, of course, you know, it has its own kind of tongue in cheek nature to it. About like saying Christian Arianism. You know, Arianism is antithetical to Christianity, right? And and in this sense, Zionism, uh, defined as such, is antithetical to historic Christianity. So, yeah. Okay, good question. Cre- good question. Good question. Let's then um, go into this assertion with Wolfmuller that dispensationalists make a distinction between Israel and the Church wolf muller writes they teach that israel is the earthly people of god and the church is the heavenly people according to dispensationalists god works differently in different dispensations of history the old testament he had a particular plan to save his people through works and sacrifices so there's a huge difference and you can see how that still resonates today people are astonished when you tell them that the old testament saints had faith in christ and that's how they were saved. They say, no, they were saved through the sacrifices. And then Christ came, and now they've been saved through Christ. That's a complete inaccurate reading of the scriptures, complete inaccurate understanding of the scriptures. All right, Wolfmuller continues When the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah, the Lord switched to plan B the, <laughs> the crucifixion and the establishment of the New Testament church. In other words, what would plan A have been according to a broad dispensational view? They would have accepted him as king and he would have reigned among them. But since they rejected him, plan B, he's got to be crucified and do this new thing called the church. Well, Miller continues, this is a shocking thing for most non-dispensational Christians to hear. How could the death and resurrection of Jesus be plan B? Some dispensationalists, embarrassed by this teaching, have modified their doctrine and tried to bring the works of God in the Old and New Testament into unity. This is, quote-unquote, modified or, quote-unquote, moderated dispensationalism. This theological adjustment is good and should be carried to its conclusion, namely, the abandonment of dispensationalism altogether. Dispensationalism builds a wall between Israel and the church. Jesus, the scriptures teach, tears that wall down. Right, so, I mean, obviously we're going to quote a scripture here, Ephesians two eleven through 22. But this is an argument all the way through the New Testament so that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And dispensationalism sets up and says, no, there is a Jew and there is a Gentile, and the Jews are saved this way and the Gentiles are saved this other way. That's the heart of dispensationalism. It's not just against like one or two passages, it's against entire epistles and entire sections of our Lord's and his Apostles teaching. Alright, now quoting st paul therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh were at that time separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world but now in christ jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one who is the us jew and gentile made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility what's the dividing wall of hostility it's going to be that it's going to be the old covenant circumcision and the commandments particularly in view here the ones that are dietary and um, uh, chronological and that kind of thing in nature what we would call the ceremonial aspects of the law because the Jews would look down their noses at the Gentiles and say, we are a circumcised people. We follow the dietary laws. We follow the calendar of Israel, etc. And you Gentiles do not. So that's the wall that's set up and then Christ, by being crucified, uh, breaks down that wall in his flesh. So, sorry for the digression, but that's what Paul means when he says, For he himself, namely Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, again the both is Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, here this would be the view of the Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, Jew and Gentile made one. I mean, that text alone is sufficient to just obliterate dispensationalism and this idea that Israel and the church are two different entities and God has two different plans for them and He's going to treat them differently, etc. It misses the entire point of uh, the cross as Paul sees it and the marvel, this mystery that God intends salvation. Um, not only for the Jews and not only for those who are drawn into their kingdom, but really for the whole world, for all the nations. Yes, right. If you go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophesies of this time in which um, the Messiah of God is going to reign over all the nations. And so, right, Uh, the this is not a novel teaching on the part of our Lord or his apostles here, Paul in specific. They themselves, I mean, in a sense, they themselves are doing sola scriptura by going back to the Old Testament, saying this is what the Old Testament has always said, and this is what's happening. Now, the proof for them of the this is what's happening is that the Gentiles were converting in mass and initially receiving the charismatic kinds of gifts of the Spirit that others were receiving. So, Prophesying dreaming dreams, speaking in foreign languages that they hadn't learned wouldn't that be nice and uh, healings and other such miracles that are um, that are more prevalent there in that initial period but that's that's testimony that God is embracing the Gentile and the Jew and embracing them as one people okay so that's um any th- any thoughts you have there? But there's the, uh, there's the first fundamental teaching of dispensationalism or assertion of dispensationalism. And it's just very easy to disprove biblically. It's just, um, if you've sort of imbibed this dispensational worldview or teaching into your Christianity, that's the only uncomfortable thing is you get rug pulled. It's like, wait a minute, that's only a couple hundred years old, this teaching that I've believed and the specialness of Israel and all the geopolitics that have gone into it and everything else that's all just not even biblical not even christian and the answer to that shockingly is like yeah that's right um, it's not so uh, there's the first point if you have any comments feedback questions that's um, happy to entertain those otherwise we'll move on okay there's one one second get you a microphone
1: I'm going to go back in history. This was soon after 9-11, and John Warwick Montgomery was speaking at Concordia, and I asked him a question after his lecture. You know, how do we justify uh, Israel's wars? And he said this was to maintain the separateness of Israel to keep in uh, keep in, uh Keep in line the descent of the Savior mm. and, um, so that it would not be confused and broken up. Mm. But I see the same thing with keeping the Israelites separate with the ceremony of laws also. And there should be no intermarriage and everything. This was to maintain the line of the Savior, which helped me a lot.
0: Mm. Interesting.
1: Um, and the other thing is, just last night on Newsmax, John Voigt, whom I like very much— uh, is going to have a special on dispensationalism he was arguing the you know, reestablishment of Israel uh, as a marker for us and all this kind of things. the interviewer on Newsmax I could tell by what he didn't say and the look on his face didn't comment on what he said but he was presenting that Newsmax was going to present this so it's a relevant subject today mm-hmm. definitely
0: oh yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> you're a fan of the left behind movies there's better apocalyptic movies out there. although they're never really like bright and cheery movies I never, you know, yeah. go, I'm, in, I'm in too good of a movie, mood right now I'd like to go watch an apocalyptic movie to tame my <laughs> happiness yes please Pastor, uh, what might the crusades have to do with any of this the specialness of Jerusalem well, that's a good question, but I think, it's, I think it's, the answer is probably a little too deep and would take us a little too far afield. I personally am a fan of the Crusades. I know that that's kind of maybe shocking. Um, of course, if you know me, not really. But uh, shoot, let me, um, let me get you a title of a book. He was a recent guest on Issues Etc. And he's written several books detailing the actual geopolitical history of the Crusades. What you see is Christians in Christian lands being attacked by Islam and then Christians, um, again, uh, and, and this having more to do with geopolitics than Christianity per se, going to reclaim those lands. So, I mean, imagine, imagine maybe, this will, maybe this will give you a, some kind of parallel to work with. Imagine if in the 1950s, uh, Canada came down and stole Montana and then we as Americans and as Christian Americans said let's go take that back and we went and took that back that's a lot of what the Crusades are and um, are there atrocities connected with the Crusades? Yeah there's atrocities connected with every act of warfare man has ever known Uh, so it's not like some full-throated, hey, we should be doing the crusades again kind of thing, or hey, they were uh, pure or sinless, not making any claims like those, just that they've been vilified in our times and grossly, inaccurately represented to us just in terms of objective history. So remind me, I'll get you that author's name and the title. I haven't had a chance to read it. I've got the book sitting on my desk because like I listened to his issues, etc. article and it was like, I've thought all of these same things for 20 years. And just like that was my hunch and that was my guess. And then he's like, yeah, here's the historic facts. So it was like also kind of really exonerating. (laughs) Don't you love it when that happens? (laughs) Like these things have been completely vilified. I bet that it's not the case. Okay, so on to um, the second point, page 220. The second dangerous distinction of dispensationalism is the claim of using a, quote, consistent literal hermeneutic, end quote. All right, well, what does Wolf Muller mean by this? He writes dispensationalists claim to read the Bible literally. If the text says 1,000 years, it means 1,000 literal historical years. If the text says the Antichrist will exalt himself in the temple, it must mean the literal temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the dispensationalists are looking for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem in order to fulfill the prophecy of 2 Thessalonians 2.4. The trouble with the supposed consistent literal hermeneutic is that it does not match Scripture's own interpretation of itself. The Bible, Old and New Testament, is chiefly a book about Jesus, not about Israel. So you can see the problem with this view. The same St. Paul who just told us in Ephesians 2 that uh, we are all being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord, this idea of church being a not concrete you know, place that you could jump in an airplane and fly to, but this church understood not in a concrete local sense of a temple in Jerusalem that when the same saint Paul writes in second thessalonians two four that the man of lawlessness will put himself within the temple be seated within the temple of God you know what does this mean this means that you're going to have a man of lawlessness set within the church and by lawlessness he's going to contradict the law of God that's what St Paul means so we're not waiting for the temple to be rebuilt for this guy to literally put a throne in the temple and all this other nonsense that's never going to happen And even if it did happen, you would go, this isn't the fulfillment of anything necessarily. It may well be just somebody aping all of these things. It may even be a delusion put upon us by Satan while he's doing the real work behind the scenes. Um, Of course, as Lutherans with the Book of Concord, it's very clear to us that the one who sits in the temple of God as if he were God, is none other than the self-proclaimed vicar of Christ, the office of the papacy that sets within the church of God, uh, condemning the gospel, condemning the church fathers, condemning the writings of the apostles, while inventing all kinds of new doctrines day in, day out, and binding consciences and souls to this, subverting the very gospel of the church from within the church, thus the ultimate lawlessness. Um, this, this obviously um, is a descriptor of the papacy. Um, are there other antichrists? Of course. And John's epistle, he speaks of a plurality of antichrists. Might there be one particular individual that's the summation of that office? That remains an open question. Uh, We can wait and see on that one. But the idea that an office within the church of God that subverts the very essence of the church, that's clear as day. Okay, so... Um, yes, as Wolfmuller says, the trouble with the supposed consistent literal hermeneutic is that it doesn't match the Scripture's own interpretation of itself. Okay? It's a book about Jesus, not about Israel. And he continues, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life testimony and witness of the scriptures is about jesus through and through from moses and all the prophets and so we've quoted here from john 5 and luke 24 this witness of the entire scriptures is not only about the person of jesus but also about his work suffering death and resurrection the central theme of the scriptures is the death of jesus jesus is speaking literally when he says see we are going up to jerusalem And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. It is in Jerusalem, in our Lord's Passion, Death, and Resurrection, that the prophetic words find its completion. The center of the scriptures and the climax of all history is not the earthly millennium, but the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament constantly quotes the Old Testament to show that it is fulfilled in Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1. The Bible teaches us a consistent hermeneutic, and it is Christ. Reading the Bible without Christ is like reading a veiled book, but the veil is lifted when we see the scriptures are about Jesus. Okay, so this idea that dispensationalism holds to a consistent literal hermeneutic But this very frame in which they read the scriptures makes Jesus a kind of cog in a greater machinery, a necessary asterisk in a a narrative that isn't really about him, but about Israel. And so Jesus is just a piece of the puzzle in dispensationalism. And that can happen and does in fact happen in much of American Christianity where Jesus isn't the... Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the source and the fulfillment. Um, Jesus is just a part of a larger theological scheme. Wherever you have that, you have something majorly wrong. All right. Well, we'll move on to the third point that Wolf Mueller brings up. Before we do, any questions or comments on this second one? All right. On to the third. Dispensationalists claim. that the purpose of history is the glory of God rather than the salvation of mankind. Wolf Miller writes, it doesn't matter, they say, if God condemns or saves us. He is glorified either way, and that is the point of it all. The strange and dangerous thing here is pitting these two things, God's glory and man's salvation, against each other. The Bible holds them together. When the angels sing to the shepherds at the birth of Jesus, they hold these two doctrines together. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus speaks of his cross as his glory. Quoting from John 13, "...now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and glorify Him at once." When the 24 elders around the throne of God in heaven fall down to worship the Lamb who was slain, they put the glory of God and the salvation of humanity together. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5 Dispensationalism is a doctrine of despair it fails to read correctly the scriptures instead of distinguishing between law and gospel it makes a false distinction between israel and the church it reads earthly israel into the scriptures where it should see christ and it drives a wedge between god's glory and man's salvation it is a wonderful surprise that jesus is glorified in saving us He is exalted on the cross. He is lifted up for our salvation. The purpose of history is both God's glory and man's salvation. And both of these are found on the cross. All right, so there is the third critique, or I guess it's an assertion of dispensationalists and a critique by Wolfmuller. Any questions or comments on that last point? So I think that these three points serve to demonstrate um, basic tenets of dispensationalism and why we Lutherans don't really have time for it Um, we're happy to clarify our position over and against these things but not only are they contrary to the scriptures they're brand new teaching relative to the history of the church arriving in the 19th century Um, could you explain that a little more? Suffering. And others
1: have. Why are you going? Because you
0: prod out. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. That only only converted into Christ, who is himself the crucified, and why is he crucified? Um, In perfect love toward God and in perfect love toward man, Uh, and he's crucified in this sense then um, for us and uh, in love for us who hated him and in love for God who had forsaken him justly and righteously then we have a way of understanding our own suffering in this world as we conduct ourselves, as we, as Jesus says, take up our crosses and follow him, following him ultimately even unto death. And apart from that reality, apart from that gospel, what is suffering? And it's just uh, random, confusing, and we're incapable of understanding that it has a purpose or a point, that there's any intelligence behind it whatsoever. And there are um, there are psalms and, of course, uh, Ecclesiastes and Job uh, both meditate on, on these things. Yeah. Like
1: they
0: it. yeah. Yeah, the meaning, I mean, for a Christian it's very easy. The meaning of life is Jesus, and the meaning of suffering is Jesus, and it is um, being conformed into his image, which is an image of... Uh, suffering first and glorification second, of humiliation first and exaltation second. So we can find our place within that very easily and it very much helps us to endure and understand what it is that we're going through. Okay, so what about the rapture? Page 221. Especially the All right, well, let's get into it. I remember waiting for the rapture, Wolf Mueller writes. When I was in American Christianity, that was the thing to do. One year in particular stands out, 1993. I had read an article by a Bible teacher, in quotes, (laughs) who had done the math, and based on the date of Israel's becoming a nation in 1948, and the average length of a generation in the Bible. This fellow had figured out that 1993 would be the year that Jesus would return. I knew the Bible said no one will know the day or the hour, Mark 13 32, but it didn't say anything about not knowing the year. Gotcha. <laughs> Wolf Miller continues, I remember my anxiousness as the year wound down. After Christmas, I knew there were only six days left. Then came New Year's Eve. Oh, I love it. I love it. Because, of course, God's timeline follows ours. Then came New Year's Eve, and I knew Jesus was coming that day. Night came, so I knew I would be raptured out of bed. The morning came. You can imagine my disappointment until I realized it could still be nineteen ninety three somewhere in the world. I only had to wait a few more minutes until the rapture. Wolfmiller is much more confident than I would have been. If I were in his shoes, I would have thought, Well, I'm still here. The rest of my family's gone. (laughs) Go panic through the house. All right, he continues, My experience is not unique. While it is not true that all rapture teachers are setting dates and predicting times, it is true that the teaching of the rapture drums up a kind of eschatological frenzy. This is how the relatively new and obscure teaching of the secret rapture has become one of the most popular teachings in many churches and is the backbone of any number of books, movies, and bumper stickers. Most evangelicals who write or speak on the subject of prophecy assume that the key end-time event for Christians is the secret rapture. What is the popular teaching of the rapture? Is it biblical? And how are we to understand the second coming of our Lord Jesus? I've already mentioned this popular bumper sticker, warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. My wife had one of these on her first car. This friendly warning told all those around her to look out. If the rapture happened while she was driving down the interstate, there would be no one to steer or stop, and the car would go careening into the oncoming traffic. Thus, the seven-year tribulation would begin with monstrous traffic jams. According to the dispensationalist view, the coming of Jesus will happen at two separate times. And there's the first dead giveaway. We are waiting for our Lord's return, (laughs) singular, not our Lord's returns, plural. You simply don't have any theology in the New Testament where we're waiting for returns, plural. There's one parousia, there's one apocalypsis, there's one second coming or revelation of Jesus Christ. yeah i mean like, like wolf miller says it has this kind of romanticism this kind of frenzy to it this kind of all-encompassing you know grab this false teaching grasps hold of our imaginations and we run wild with it we don't need to because the reality is going to be even more dramatic we can just wait all right so where did i leave off yes according to the dispensations view, the coming of jesus will happen at two separate times in the first, Jesus will come secretly. Now this is, I hope he quotes it, because this is hilarious. The text from which the rapture is taken, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Yeah, good, he's going to get there. The, the very quotation from which they, they get rapture, and they tie it into this secret coming, where Paul uses the language of rapture being caught up, it's the noisiest thing you can imagine. There's an an angel, an archangel shouting. There's a trumpet blast from heaven. It's the most noisy thing ever. And that's the very text they use to say that Jesus is going to rapture us secretly. So, yeah, great fun. All right, so in the first, Jesus will come secretly, returning halfway to earth to snatch away all Christians to heaven. Why else do Christians like this? Because in this way of thinking, Christians don't participate in the Great Tribulation we're saved from the really bad stuff it continues the true believers will suddenly disappear while the unbelievers will be quote unquote left behind to receive a second chance I mean, which is just also ridiculous because if you saw everybody I mean if you're a pagan and you saw everybody disappear off the face of the earth you know all the Christians you'd be like oh gee let me continue to rebel When you just think about the reality of how this would play out, it's nonsensical too. During the following seven-year period, it is said, the Antichrist will come into power. God will select and seal the 144,000 Jews who will then take the gospel to the whole world, converting countless souls to Christ. After those seven years of tribulation and trouble, Jesus will then come in all power and glory. His second coming, I don't know about that. That's actually not his second coming. That's like his second second coming. It's his third coming. Christ will rule directly over the earth from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Those who ultimately reject Christ even after the rapture and tribulation will be judged and destroyed. The very popular left-behind books begin with the rapture and people disappearing from planes, cars, and their beds. A baby disappears from the birth canal, and in a generous ecumenical touch, the Pope goes missing, secretly and silently raptured. Many corners of American Christianity are obsessed with the secret rapture. Yet this is not what the Bible teaches about the last day and Jesus' second coming. There are two texts to consider, 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52, and 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18 Both of these texts are used to teach the secret rapture. Both of these texts have nothing to do with the secret rapture at all. Both are about the resurrection. When the scriptures speak of the last day and Jesus' second coming, they speak of two major events, the resurrection of the dead and the judgment. Almost every warning, promise, and parable of the second coming concerns these two events. It is troublesome that the church has lost her robust confession of the resurrection of the body that now tends to speak of our eternal soul in heaven as the end of all things. When Jesus returns to the earth, he will call forth the dead bodies of all people, will you reunite them with their souls, and then usher the believers in him into the eternal new heaven and earth. The Lord's Church will dwell in the resurrection in peace and bliss with the Lord forever. The resurrection of the dead, then, is central in the teaching of the second coming. When Jesus returns, those who have died will be called out of the grave. The question then arises, what about those who are still alive when Jesus returns? How will they be resurrected? Will Jesus put them to death so that he can raise them to life? Or will they miss the resurrection altogether? These are the questions that Paul is answering in these two texts. First, consider 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty through 52 I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet." For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Alright, so we can't go in our present mortal, sinful, sniffling state into the kingdom of God. We can't go in these perishable bodies into an imperishable kingdom. So what's going to happen? And Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, we're not all going to die, but we will all be Changed, namely those of us who are alive at his coming. How will we be changed? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Hey, a trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we who are still around will be changed. Namely, from perishable into imperishable. From flesh and blood, that is our fallen state, into that state of a spiritual man, embodied, but embodied perfectly, like our Lord Jesus all right so what does wolf miller have to say bottom of 223 after discussing the resurrection of the dead for the entire chapter paul now takes up the question of those who are alive when jesus returns he starts by restating the theological problem flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god in other words we who are alive cannot simply walk into the new heaven and the new earth our corruption is unfit for eternity we must first be resurrected given incorruptible and immortal bodies if we want to enter the eternal kingdom of God. How will we be given resurrected bodies? Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is, die in the faith, but we shall all be changed. We who are alive will, along with those who sleep in the grave, be changed. This then is how we want to understand the scriptural teaching of the quote-unquote rapture. It is the mystery of the resurrection of the living, the instantaneous changing into immortal, resurrected bodies of those who are alive when Jesus returns. Paul explicitly states this in verse 52, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. We see these two things together, the resurrection of the dead and the quote-unquote rapture, the resurrection of the living. Notice also that instead of being a precursor event of an unfolding apocalyptic scenario, the rapture is concurrent with the last trumpet and the resurrection of the dead. Also notice that there is nothing secret about this event. The trumpet of God is sounding, announcing the last day. All right, and then I think First Thessalonians 4 really drives home the point. So he says, have us a second, let's consider this. It's answering the same question as before. How will the living be resurrected? Now, quoting, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that's Christians who have died in Christ, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, what would be the false belief here? Well, That if they died before the coming of the Lord, they're out. They're going to miss out. No, Paul's saying. Not a chance. Those who are asleep, we don't have to grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They're not going to miss out. They're going to be with him and with us continues, "...for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep." Right? So we who are still living, who haven't died, we're not going to be before them. "...for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command." With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. I mean, can you imagine the noise of all of this? And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be raptured, caught up together with them. With who? The newly resurrected saints who had already died. We who are alive are transformed, and now we're all caught up together. Um, so us with those who have died and are now resurrected, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul talks of two groups of people, those who have fallen asleep, died in the faith, and those who are alive. The dead will rise first. That's the resurrection of the dead. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The living will be brought up into the clouds to meet with the Lord. We see again that the rapture is the mystery of the resurrection of the living, the means by which Jesus makes fit for eternity those who are alive when he returns. Um, why Why are we taken up into the air, out of the world with the Lord? Not because there's going to be seven years of tribulation, but because the world's about to be destroyed, and all the denizens of the world That's why we're lifted up out of it at that time. Okay, so Wolfmiller continues, also note again that the rapture is concurrent with Jesus' return and the resurrection of the dead. Finally, note that Paul seems to take pains in this text to indicate that this event is the precise opposite of a secret. Jesus shouts, the archangel shouts, and God himself blows the trumpet phrase left behind comes from Jesus teaching concerning his coming on Matthew 24:25. So here's the third. Let's try to cover this quickly and then we've covered the three major texts that that they use. Um, I'm really only familiar with the argument in 1 Thessalonians 4 and then here in Matthew 24. The phrase, left behind, comes from Jesus' teaching concerning his second coming, Matthew 24 and 25. He says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, Teachers of the secret rapture point to this text and say, Look, there it is. People will be going about their business and one will disappear. That's the secret rapture. But on closer examination, we see that Jesus is teaching the opposite. The idea that those who are not taken to the Lord will go about wondering what happened to their friends is nowhere in the text. As if those who were swept away by the flood were puzzled over the whereabouts of Noah. In the days of Noah, the flood came and took away all the unbelievers. So it will be on the last day. Jesus will return and the unbelievers will be taken away in judgment. To be taken away is the bad thing. To be left behind is what we want. (laughs) To stand before the Lord in his glory. This text is a picture of the judgment and separation. Like those who were destroyed by the flood, like the unfaithful servant who is cut in two, like the foolish virgins who are locked out of the wedding, like the wicked and lazy steward who is cast into outer darkness, and like the sheep who are sent away, so will the unbelievers who are in the field or at the grindstone be taken away in judgment." And again, if you have any doubts about this, go and and look through these texts. Uh, That would be the first thing. And see this theme of being taken away or being excluded. Um, That will help you understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24. And then second to that, perhaps even more important though, is really look at the rhetoric that Jesus uses when he uses Noah as the parallel. Okay, They're eating and drinking, and Noah entered the ark until the flood came and swept them all away so in the immediate context being swept away is bad then what does jesus say two men will be in a field one will be taken one left two women will be grinding at the mill one will be taken one left the parallel is to be taken here is bad it's to be washed away in the flood of god's wrath at the coming of the son of man So both the immediate context, the parallel with Noah, shows it as well as all these other teachings of Jesus that Wolfmuller has laid out for us here at the top of 226. And again, you can see that this just has nothing to do with some sort of secret rapture, secret first coming of Jesus where there's a second coming later on. Yeah, Right. Right. That's what just clearly makes the most exegetical sense. Even irrespective of the question of rapture, that's just what's going on as the bad people are swept away.
1: Question? um, Time for one more question? Mm -hmm. I'm surprised um, Wolfmiger didn't address um, Mark 13, um, 24 through 27. Okay. And just for the sake of time, I won't read the whole passage. But on verse 27, he said, Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. Mm -hmm. And this does, to me, it does kind of uh, point out that the elect would be gathered. I'm just wondering how how would you address that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The same way it's been addressed by St. Paul, Um, particularly in first thessalonians 4 so when christ returns all right what happens to those christians who have died he returns with them and they're raised in their bodies what about us christians who are alive when he returns i mean hopefully he returns this afternoon that'd be nice and he returns what happens to us we are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye so we are now in an identical state as the resurrected saints. We're all changed. We've all been clothed in immortality. Then what happens? We are swept up by the angels, by Christ, into the air to be with him. From the whole four corners of the earth. We're all swept up. Why are we swept up to be with him? Because what happens next, no matter what the description is, it's violent. All right? So the world is purged. It's thrown away. Um, the the whole world itself is sometimes depicted like the cause the fallen cosmos and all who dwelled in it who rejected christ are sort of cast into the lake of fire are are cast into utter destruction and darkness Um, sometimes the imagery is that christ and his saints then turn and invade and push out the wicked from the earth that then just as the heavens have been purified revelation 12 the earth is purified and then both will be made new Okay. So the imagery is that we are set on the side of Jesus as Jesus executes his judgment over and against those that remain in the world, Satan and his hordes and all who have followed them. So we're, not only are we spared from that, but we're not spared from that in a way that um, we just become observers of what happens. We become, we're, we're spared from that and set on the side of Christ as he goes about his acts of judgment. One of the great comforts we have is that when judgment is enacted, we're not sitting there with the divine finger pointed at us. We have already repented of our sins, been absolved, and now we're set on the side of Christ, not with Christ against us. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and again, I mean, this is just, this simplicity is is beauty and it's beautiful because it's accurate to what all the scriptures teach and there are all these scriptures that can be mustered to support uh, this, that we as Christians are not waiting for this prophecy or that prophecy or this newspaper headline or whatever the case may be. We're waiting for Christ to return. We're not waiting for secret rapture or anything else. We're waiting for Christ to return and we know that we're going to be safe with him. We're going to be caught up. We're going to be resurrected or changed. We're going to be caught up with him we're going to be safe from the judgment we're going to be set on his side as judgment is executed against the wicked and this is just pure comforting promise and gospel that this is how it's going to go so that's why we set our sight on jesus even as we go to the conclusion of this age all right that's all the time we have today the lord be with you